0: you're listening to revenue vitals with chris walker all right everybody i'm your host steve schmidt ceo of magnetic you are listening to the magnetic podcast a special guest with me today uh chris walker somebody who i uh, really have admired in the revenue movement, kind of looked at in, in sort of like this person who's leading the way and allows me as an entrepreneur to sort of look at what he's done and grab a little bit of the cheat code. So uh, Chris, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with me today. Wish I could be there with you in that new beautiful studio in Austin. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, Stephen, great to be here. Yeah, I wish you could be in the chair next to me, but we'll make it happen next time. I'm looking forward to doing this virtually and being able to uh, catch up with you at the same time.
0: Yeah, man. Well, you're looking great. You're looking healthy. The company's doing well. So let's get right into the questions. Um, You are leading the way in the new era of revenue. It's a lot of responsibility because it's a big thing and I can feel that you feel that, but talk to me about as an executive, knowing that you built this called $20 million plus company, and you've had to weather some things through various stages of the economy. Does that feel like a ton of responsibility or what does that feel like to you?
1: I'm not sure I'd look at it as responsibility. I think that uh, when I reflect on it, it's like an opportunity for me to be able to share the things that I have learned in my career and the things that I continue to learn today, whether it's with, through consulting or leadership or you know, running a company or thinking about building another startup. And so as I continue to evolve as a professional and as a person, I'm able, I have the opportunity to share those things that I'm learning and be able to help a lot of people, which I get the confirmation that I'm helping a lot of people on LinkedIn in the comments every day and in the DMs. And so, yeah, I look at it more as an opportunity than a responsibility.
0: Walk me back to, I mean, four years ago, uh, you were in your apartment, it looks like in Boston. Um, and, and my understanding was uh, your video sort of journey and this started with you choosing to chop up Zoom calls. Um, when you were in that chair choosing to do that, did you envision this happening? And what did that look like then compared to the reality of it? No way. Yeah, When I started my
1: quote unquote company, I was a freelancer consultant trying to figure out how to make 15 grand a month to replace the salary that I got from the company that I just left. A lot of people reflect on this and when they look back that generally they just weren't thinking big enough. They didn't, weren't able to conceptualize at that stage of their life, the opportunity and the things that they are actually capable of. So uh, transparently, that's kind of where I was at. Like if I was able to build a million dollar company, I thought that was like so far away and like would have been so amazing. And it was, yeah. um, I reflect back on those times as some of the, the best in, when I was building the company is just figuring out how to get from, you know, zero to get your first $5,000 contractor to figure out how to, you know, get one more customer and reach 83K MRR, which is a million dollars a year. And so, yeah, when I started the company, it was really about how to like, I didn't even recognize how uh, unique my thoughts were at that point. I thought that everybody thought the way that I thought and everybody knew the things that I knew. And like, why is my perspective so special? And then I started when, you know, I had a couple of customers. I went to a couple of the local conferences in Boston. I think this is like, this is 2019. And with total respect to all of the, the speakers that were there, I don't even remember who was speaking specifically, but I sat through the sessions for a full day and I was like, the shit that these people are talking about, I learned it didn't work five years ago. And it started to give me a little bit more confidence to share my perspective, which then quickly gave me the feedback of like, wow, I'm actually helping a ton of people. I'm actually producing ideas and insights that other people don't have that help them be more successful that they like have felt along their career, but haven't been able to put into words the way that I've been able to. And that makes me happy. So yeah. yeah,
0: You talk a lot about mindset and I think that's new to people in B2B, um, to want to hear that in an active conversation we're used to, it talked about differently. We're taught to, uh, you know, adaptation, uh, we're talked to, to about being consistent, but we're not ever really talk to you about conditioning our minds to make sure that that's, that's the thing. And, and you know, where it helped me, um, was not a distraction from my personal life, it was, Hey, my mindset needs to also say, like, if I need to, uh, shift my focus from revenue frameworks to getting my shit together in life frameworks, um, it's still mindset. And so for me, it was very encouraging because I could like get two things done at once. So thank you. Um, and <laughs> you, 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 seem to fit in with other people who were very different from you, who were helping me in other ways. So, um, my question for you is, is that mindset for you and that expansive thinking, um, life It kind of has to be, or is it really related to revenue and, it, and how you talk to it about to people about it?
1: It's everything. Um, and if you're not like disciplined and have the right mindset, in your fitness or in your relationships, then how do you expect that you're going to be able to bring that completely different perspective into business only? I think you need to look at it as entirely as a human and all the key parts of your life. And like having a strong mindset doesn't mean that everything is glamorous and there's like rainbows all the time. Like my life is not glamorous I, you know, have to, I fight fires all the time. I have major responsibilities. I have a million dollars and more a month in expenses and people's salaries and things that need to be, you know, that are, that end up being my responsibility for a lot of people's livelihoods. And so it's an opportunity that I'm grateful for, that I think that I'm capable of, that I wake up and love to do. But the mindset that you bring to it can easily, like your perception of reality can easily point you to this is the worst thing ever, or this is the best thing ever, or anywhere in between. And two people, and this happens uh, to me a lot as I've gotten more conscious to it. two people can look at the exact same situation and see it the entire opposite way, just based on how their mind is programmed to look at look at things. And from my evolution as a like young professional twenty five, you know twenty two to twenty five thinking that I just gotta show up to my job and eventually I'll get promoted and people will, You know, then I'll be a VP, and like I just deserve all these things, and they'll just happen to me. And then you get three years into your career, and you realize none of this shit's happening for you. No one cares about you. You don't. You're not entitled or deserve anything. You got to earn those things. And then went through a four year period of my life where I was an employee, but was working on my mindset, my consistency, my discipline, my ability to create strategy, to look at other areas of the business outside of just product or marketing which then really propelled me and set me up so that when I did have the opportunity to start my company in 2019 I was ready I was disciplined I knew what work like the work that needed to be done I knew when I saw the opportunity on LinkedIn I totally capitalized on it I was quick to hire smart people to then help me and propel the growth and so the mindset for everybody but especially for entrepreneurs and and CEOs and executives I think has to be the foundation for you
0: Yeah there's a statistic I believe it's I shouldn't quote it but I'm going to uh it's uh 58 i believe or even higher of entrepreneurs end up in uh, divorce or separation so it's significantly higher i think due to that stress barrier and it's interesting because um the preparation like you said is is you walked into it knowing hey i want to be ready for this when this happens i think a lot of people today and um and i did something similar I, I really did i listened to you and jake Dunlap for probably a year and like just wrote notes and wrote notes and then checked things but i, I feel like a lot of people right now maybe um maybe stumble into it. And it's a much different way to get into business than being intentional. Um, I want to talk about, gosh, I want to get to data bias in a second, but I want uh, two more questions that are a little bit, call it people orientated. Um, yeah. Right now, I think, uh, performance, like you guys are known for performance revenue, these big things that are hard to do, right? If everybody could do it, it'd be, you know, you charge a lot less money, but you guys get out there, do it, have a great reputation. Um, while you're doing that the world is fucking chaotic right now and i feel like everybody's got a reason to be really fucking scared and um that's a choice and it's a mindset but it's also like the reality of it i am like you where um some people don't like it when i tell them i don't watch the news i don't read articles and they ask why and i just say because i can't change it and they say well don't you want to know about it and i said well if i can't change it why would i want to know about it And, and and maybe that sounds callous but i feel like it would just take me in places I don't want to go like, and, and, and that sounds selfish, but um, bringing it back to this is at a performance-based driven company, how do you balance creating called a safe place to work um, for people who want to be in a culture of performance, but yet want to still have that dubbed safe place?
1: I mean, when it comes to like the news or the overall content that you consume as a person, just be aware that you're consistently being programmed and will over time think In the same way of the content that you consume, so I'm very intentional about the types of content that I consume and the types of content that I don't consume, and curating my feed, whether that be on LinkedIn or other social networks. And so that's just a little bit of a note there. When it comes to you know the the work that we do in terms of driving revenue for companies and increasing performance and ROI of marketing activities, and even looking at the revenue analytics and giving them tips on how to improve their sales and marketing alignment or update their metrics and a lot of other things that we do. When it comes to the culture, I think that there's a couple of key foundational elements that a company requires in order to have a thriving culture. I think at the center of that needs to be positive business performance. It's tough to have a great culture when your revenue is declining 10% and you're you know, burning cash and you can't raise money. It's hard to continue to have a great culture. It's not impossible, but it puts you at a, in a much harder position. I think it's about having a clear, compelling vision of where you're going in the future that the people at the company believe in and want to be a part of. And then I think there's a huge element of transparency and communication and things like that. So that if in the absence of information, people are going to make up in their brains what's actually going on, which is typically like negative or not actually what's happening. And so providing the information actually allows people to have the context to understand why decisions are being made or what we're doing. And so I think there's like some foundational elements of culture that end up being sort of required before. Other things can even start to take effect. We actually just got back from uh, Denver, Colorado. We did an offsite there. We brought our whole team together, which we find to be, I I find personally to be uh, the highest ROI uh, expense that I have in my entire P&L every year, even considering doing it up to twice a year moving forward because of the impact that we have. And also we're a remote company. And so bringing people together, I think has a huge impact. So things like that can be hugely impactful. And so... And then I think it's about like, if you just look at the micro of like, okay, as a leader, if you want your team to post on LinkedIn and start to adopt these new strategies, then looking at how do you as a leader lead with the behaviors and the actions that you want your team to exhibit? I think those all become really important elements to culture.
0: Cool. Last question on culture. That's It's 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 so fun to listen to you answer to that because I know You can see it. And people like um, Megan, uh, you know, I look at Megan as someone who I've looked at as much as uh, you in a different way with Refine Labs. Talk to what she's meant to you in building the company.
1: Yeah. Megan's the best. If we didn't partner up in 2020, then my company would still be seven people. Yeah. And I think that having the self-awareness as an entrepreneur to know your skills and to identify who do you need as a as the number two to grow the company to fill key gaps whether that's for some founders it's the cto for other founders it's the the person who knows how to drive revenue for me it was all the operations i'm product marketing sales strategic finance vision and all those things were really complemented by megan's core skill set and even her as a professional she has evolved incredibly from you know an executive at startups for a long time being really successful now as an entrepreneur and my business partner and a leader in the company and she's at a point now where like she she can run the company she's really talented and I'm I'm grateful for all the work that we did and we went through a incredible run from when we started working together and we the business was probably doing 1.6 million ARR then the year after that we did 6.8 and then the year after that we did And we went on a, we had a really strong run and absolutely instrumental in making that all happen from hiring a team and fostering and facilitating the culture and selling deals when we need to sell deals and, you know, retaining customers and expanding customers when we need to do it and just being an overall really strong business partner and leader. And I'm really grateful for that.
0: It's great to hear uh, you talk to uh, from that perspective. It's really unique. Now, uh, let's shift it into a few questions around revenue here. There's, there's some things that people don't consider when you said mindset. Now we were talking about maybe a bigger life thing. Let's uh, double click on, on that into revenue. There is data bias, right? I know I've proven it to myself as I walk in, someone shows me the data and I go, fuck man, I was completely wrong about that. How much data bias is there? Uh, how do we get rid of the data bias and why are we so programmed to walk into uh, this the same way we do with everything, which is with, uh, a judgment.
1: Yeah, I mean whether it's subconscious bias around data in your little go to in the go to market machine or more broadly that you walk into an interview and because someone looks a certain way or is dressed a certain way or has a tattoo on their neck that you automatically make a subconscious judgment about whether or not they are fit to do the job without without them ever speaking a word and ever you seeing their resume or background or skills. Subconscious bias exists everywhere. So that's the first thing to recognize. The second thing to recognize is that when it comes to data and revenue analytics overall that you can collect and graph and tell a story tell whatever story you want with the data that you have. You can collect data and then you can analyze it in a certain way to tell whatever story that you want. I watch it every day with companies that waste millions of dollars of on LinkedIn ads or content syndication or their trade show boost they've been doing for the past twelve years or the SDRs that they carry that might have been like a 24 month CAC payback in 2019 but now we're like a 48 60 month CAC payback right now. And they just have the subconscious bias that you know, predictable revenue this is how this is how we are going to grow like and they're able to take those and then justify somehow that the 60 month CAC payback right now is okay enough to keep doing it. And I'm guilty of this too. Everybody everybody is. I think that my background in Uh, engineering and clinical trials and scientific data. And some of those allow me to be more objective in the things that I say and be more balanced in the things that I say and understand when, you know, there's a thing that comes out like from a vendor that says, like, if you say the word fuck in your, you know, calls that you're 68% more likely to close deals. And it's clear that that is correlation, not causation, that when you have a better relationship with someone, you're more likely to feel comfortable cursing which is an indicator that they're more likely to close a deal. So it's definitely a correlation, not causation. If you just show up on calls and start dropping F-bombs, you're not closing any more deals. So I think that some of my background allows me to look at data and have a more objective view than other people would just purely based on my experience. But I'm absolutely, like every person has subconscious bias, whether it's for data or other reasons.
0: It's hard. I think it's hard to walk into something and look at it without an opinion now scientifically. Walking into something means we need to walk into it. Um, it's hard for revenue people who tend to be more passionate.
1: It's interesting to think whether there's as much opinion when it comes to a company's P&L. Mm. The P&L is standardized, objective. If two people looked at it, they would probably come to the same general conclusions of what's going on in the business, but even then could have different interpretations or opinions of what it actually means. But when you think of when you think about other types of business processes that tend to be more objective, the thing that I think about is like, why can't that happen in revenue? Why is it so much different when you look at your Salesforce data combined with like your intent data and your marketing automation and your million other tools compared to your P&L? And how do we close that gap as executives and professionals where we're able to look at our revenue data across the executive team in a shared view, common shared view that allows us all to come to draw similar conclusions based on the data that we look at. And that's simply not happening in B2B companies today. Every single department, every single sub function, all is looking at different data, different metrics with different filters. I think it leads to uh, a lot of people having different stories about what's actually happening and what we should do next.
0: And so this is a, This is the problem, right? This is you stated the problem as you see it, and now you've expanded into, I mean, I listened to you, so I know where this is going and I love it. So I want to describe it how I see it or how I hear about it from you. Revenue is not just a function of making money or pipeline. It is an overall function of a company maintaining healthy revenue, healthy balance sheets. Talk to me about that because I know there's a big release coming from you guys. I feel like it's software and I feel like it's going to guide people into that kind of single view dashboard and then drill down. Is that where you've arrived after the last four years of collecting data and how did you get there if that's the case?
1: Yeah, we're coming up on a, a new announcement and evolution of how it works, uh, and so that's forthcoming. but yeah, starting in 2020, I was uh, work I got hired by the first like legit CMO that hired me, Allison Monroe at Venna, and she saw something in my LinkedIn content and believed in me. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. And her and I worked directly for almost a year. And the first thing that we did was start to analyze the revenue data and something that I had some opinions on. I had some ideas on, but I had never done at a company of that size and scale aside for the ones that I'd been a direct employee of. And they had actually way better data than I had ever seen before. So we worked through some processes and we identified some things and we saw that you know despite having 65,000 and all the executives at the company that was in purchased by PE, all the executives changed. So like nobody at the company is like cares about what happened in the past. they're just looking they're trying to look at the data to get insights oh. and which is a great situation to be in because they're not tied to the past. yeah and we looked at the data and despite having 65,000 MQLs come in the previous year, that they only won like 140 deals and the win rates were super low and their ACVs on high enough to support that. And they're spending, as a relatively small company, spending $150,000 on digital advertising to make that happen. Per month. Um, and per month. Yeah, yeah. And so, and with just like what I would consider like a pretty basic analysis of what's actually happening and identify all the places where the budget's being wasted identify the things that are actually working proven buyer journeys where buyers pass through move through you know a sales process and convert to revenue in a repeatable and consistent way with good sales velocity find what those are then start to rearchitect the entire sort of like at that point it was demand now i think about it as go to market because we have sdrs and how we utilize sales and field and other things like that yeah and then see just like a massive impact in the business see great scalability where we take we actually took the advertising down from 150k to 50k initially Got CAC back in line, and then built it back up, and then over the next two years, scaled from fifty k on two channels to a four four hundred k across twelve channels, and that was like the that data analysis was the first ever revision of the stuff that I'm um, I continue to work on now. Yeah. Um. And then the two or three years between that, we probably did at least a hundred of those types of analyses, and we learned new things about the process and we saw a bunch of different companies data some of the shittiest data and some of the most like robust and well done well governed and be able to identify processes where we can repeatably do this and get similar insights and then starting in june of this year we started to look at it in a little bit of a different view of how do we start to apply automation to this how do we start to apply standardization What baseline stuff does the company need in terms of their data? And then how are we able to architect it and look at it in different views to be able to get to the end result and insights that we want and need? How are we able to then aggregate that data and look at patterns that we see over hundreds of companies? Or how are we able to use that to create benchmarks that when we say, hey, company B, like you're really underperforming in this area. And then we can say, here's how a hundred other companies perform and here's their metric and here's yours. To give them a clear sense of and an objective view of their relative performance. And I think that B2B companies need that right now. I think it's so much uh, so much internal analytics from people, whether there's certain people at like the manager director level that are trying that are biased to show that their things are working the best. And I get it. But even at the at the RevOps level and having like a strategic view, I think that the processes that we've gone through over the past four years to analyze so many companies is just irreplicatable. From an internal function, and so I think we have uh, a lot to offer yeah. in terms of how we do it. We've been doing them manually for four years. It's semi automated right now. We've gone from it taking six weeks to it taking three weeks, and I expect by the end of the year that it will be almost simultaneous. It's big, almost instantaneous. Yeah,
0: that's why mindset's got to be so big for you right now. Um, two questions. Out. Well, one question. You, you, I can hear the medical and pharmaceutical device background. When you when you speak about things, which I can really appreciate, right? Proving out theories, um, and and this this goes back to a long time ago when people argued about like psychology and you know Carl Jung and different people who were right and wrong, and there was never been a universal truth on anything, and I'm glad for that. Um, But as you view this new era of revenue, when do you view that? An early stage company should bring in RevOps and and, and being very generic here, right? So is it services? Is it SaaS? Let's call it early stage SaaS or services company. You can fill in the blanks. Let's say they just crossed uh, 500K and they're looking to hire that next sales team. Where would you recommend and why? Mm,
1: I think this is totally dependent on the skills of the people in the company. So it's tough for me to say, but you can kind of look at it in two ways that like Actually, I would say like when you have six reps, like somewhere around that range is where you should and you're going to have to lean on your VP of sales or a rep that had done it before or someone in marketing that kind of understands Salesforce for a little while. It's just hard. It's hard to like at 500K ARR, it's hard to carry a $150,000 rev ops person when you're doing 500K a year. It's like 20, 30% of your revenue spent on a non-revenue producing and non-customer producing function, it drives efficiency, it's operationally smart, but you don't get the benefits of that operational efficiency until you reach some level of scale. So I think, yeah, I would say six reps is a good, like sort of barometer to think about somewhere in that range.
0: Where, where does a company, um, bring in internal versus external? Because right now, if I look around, um, and let's just use my, my own company as an example. So we are, you know, seventh, we're in a seventh month. We just crossed eighty thousand dollars in revenue Um, we just crossed profitability and we're targeting exit the year at 58 percent marching towards 1.3 and kind of this pause to go what's next Um, i now shift my focus to is our growth better served internally or do we now need to outsource it to let's say a refine labs and i'm not kissing your ass i would hire you because i think you're the best but give me some advice am i best to look for that internal for that next called stage of demand? And uh, replacing just lead gen, or am I better suited to look for that internally or externally? Just give me your opinion on that.
1: Yeah. So I've talked about, I've talked with CMOs about this a lot in one on one conversations. And like a, a late stage CMO or like a mature company sort of looks at uh, combining internal and external talent as a method of risk mitigation in addition to the external firm injecting new ideas into their team and challenging their team. So whether that's having your SDR team and having a pod that's outsourced so that that pod is kind of pushing it, trying new things, bringing that back into you, you can kind of compare the performance. I think that for a thousand person company, I think that would be pretty smart. I think the same thing could go for, you know, advertising or thought leadership or even like experiential and physical events. I think there's some And so uh, like at a late stage, I I see it for that reason. When you look at like early stage, like a company like yours or a series A company that just raised 5 million and has, you know, just two sales reps just getting out of founder sales, haven't really done anything in marketing. I think that there is uh, a lot of value in having the resources be outsourced at the beginning as a method of proving that the strategy works. So if if you believe as an executive that a company that's done it with 150 companies already is more likely to be successful than hiring one person off the street and hoping that they can do it, which is typically like at that stage, a manager level employee. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're sort of betting like six months to a year, a level of investment, the compounding growth of your company, all in the talent of this one person. And it usually doesn't work out. And so sort of reversing back and thinking... How do I use an external SDR firm or an external firm like Refine Labs or even like some cheapo LinkedIn ads agency to prove out your LinkedIn strategy or anything like that as a way to say, I'm going to use this firm. If it doesn't work, I can come to to a confident conclusion that LinkedIn doesn't work. So I'm not going to hire somebody to do LinkedIn that I pay $8,000 a month and I'm going to have to fire after eight months. So I look at it more as like a as a proof, like a proof of con- a lower risk proof of concept and a much higher probability of success. And then if you start seeing that work, then start to blend internal resources with those external resources. I will I, I do see companies uh, actively today and in the future moving much more to a hybrid talent model. There are there are like executives in two camps of like we don't outsource anything like fuck agencies forget that like forget that consultant like my team and my people like that's what we do and then there are people that are like we're all we're going to have an age. we spend a million dollars a month on paid media we're always going to use a paid media agency or we you know we're always going to have an, a five person sdr pod that's pushing the limits and those two sort of like polar opposite views i think will come more into uh a normalization where both groups see that there's a middle ground that's probably
0: the ideal it's really fun to ask these i have two more questions for you chris today i think this is a big thing so i want everybody to listen up if you're planning in revenue this is gonna be important um budget planning cycles some are complete some are in it there's a lot of flux what is the single most important thing piece of advice that you would give anybody as they walk into their budgeting season
1: um, so every, every company is going to look at their historical data and you try to use the historical data as an input to what are we going to do in the future. Typically, the issue in this type of planning for companies is that they segment by vertical or geog- like geography or segment but don't take into account the full buyer journey. So they're just most companies when they do this type of planning, will look at stage one opportunity forward. And then it's a little marketing pet project to try and figure out other things, but not, they're not really looking at it holistically. And the key insight that, you know, we have figured out over time is that all of the things that happen before the person talks to your sales team have a dramatic impact on the success inside of the sales process. And that level of data and that granularity of looking at it typically doesn't find its way into the planning as I've seen it today. Yeah. And yeah, like your enterprise opportunities win at 6% and your mid-market opportunities win at 22%, that's great. But even inside of those little segments, the enterprise opportunity that fills out your demo request is going to close at a much higher rate than the one that you cold called that had never heard of you before. And so to be able to break down your revenue data in a more granular view and then use that data to then be inputs... Of here's the historical performance here's what we can expect for next year and then start to apply other assumptions efficiency improvements insights from customers which i'm going to get to in a second and so companies typically like if it's a connecting marketing and sales data in like a in a granular way to then help you look at historical data and then plan for the future i think is one key element there's a huge other element that i think is entirely underutilized um, and would be incredibly impactful for companies of having a stream of customer insights that you're collecting from your customers which become a core input to your next year strategy and understand what people where they get information, how much they trust, what how they want to engage when they're ready to buy, what steps they want to be able to do on their own, who are the key people that their podcasts or shows or things like that that they listen to to get information and understand all of that which then allows you to make some confident decisions. Like if you're 97% of your customers say they want to know the price before they talk to your sales team, you have a much, hopefully have a much better for the past six years, you've been avoiding putting price on your website. Now you have this data. Maybe this is the year when 97% of your customers tell you that you actually put it on your website and being able to use that input along with historical data of here's what here's how we did before. Here's what our customers are saying here's what we think we need to change based on that, which then sort of propels both a, like a financial and data plan, as well as more of an overall, hey, here's how we're going to allocate budget. Here's how we're going to change how we operate to accommodate how our customers want to buy, et cetera. So I think those two key inputs then propel you to the future. And it's something that we're working on a lot from an automation standpoint to be able to go back and look at historical performance and then be able to then with our level of granularity, be able to project that in a much greater way. The future outputs or, you know, next year's plan or how they should be tracking for the quarter. I acknowledge that it's something that a company like Clary or there's probably other ones out there that, that do this, but they own, they start at stage one opportunity and they look forward. Um, and like I mentioned at the beginning, everything that happens before it becomes an opportunity and all that data and insight and how you look at that data and insight will then give you a much higher accuracy prediction for the future.
0: Wow. Super informed question. This one, to me, I I don't think I've heard you answer this next question, Um, but this is the most interesting question to me and into what my company does, which is content creation to drive revenue and much more of a demand gen framework than lead gen. Funny, because I built a lead gen company. That company didn't work out. This company is very profitable. My life is much better. And uh, I think you were onto something. So I'll leave (laughs) This question, though, is about content, and uh, we've got a lot of talking heads, right? Everybody's got the Zoom thing down, and um, the, what we coined it as, as uh, 3D, like take this content from a two-dimensional platform of two people talking to each other into 3D, which could be, call it this idea of creating a media channel, getting outside and, and doing content. Do you see that as the future or call it the present and the future of content, and if it is. How do companies embrace that? Because that's not something that's easy for them to do and just turn on a Zoom account.
1: It's the past, it's the present, and it's the future. It's as simple as that. For those that were paying attention, this has been a core like strategy, successful strategy for companies since the mid-2010s, 2015, 2016, where you saw smart people transition from, okay, I'm going to r- write blogs and hope that people search for the blogs and find them. And I'm going to write commodity PDFs and put them on those blogs so that people read, like, find my blog and then download my PDF so I can email nurture them. And smart people re- started to move the pendulum to say, okay, instead, I'm going to create video content and then I'm going to be able to distribute that video content on my website, but also in all of these social networks. And so that was a process that I started to go through in 2015, 2016. I u- was using Facebook ads to boost a pot, a, video, a live in person video podcast that I did with somebody would take their perspective and put in front of our target customers on on Facebook and Instagram ads with a lot of success. And so to just to make the point, like there was definitely it's not just the present or the future. It was definitely the past as well. Um, And people have been able to leverage that to build, you know, to accelerate growth in their business at a very significant ROI while other people continue to do things that they had been doing since 2010. The true reason as to why it's successful is because the human's method to consume content has evolved. And I don't believe that B2B companies are accurately assessing the way that their customers actually behave. They make a bunch of excuses. Oh, we sell to CISOs and they use ad blockers. So we'll, we'll just not run ads and instead we'll do content syndication or something like that. Or we sell to, you know, neurologists and they're just at they're just in the ER or the OR all day and they're never on a mobile device and they never use social networks. And it's like, I know. ER docs and I know neurologists and they're the craziest people I know and they're posting everything (laughs) on Instagram and they're riding motorcycles everywhere. It's like, you don't know your customer, you're making assumptions about your customer. And so the way that people like fundamentally consume content has totally changed from, you know, sitting at a, you know, in-person conference, listening to someone speak at an event, which people still do. But in 2012, that was one of the only ways to get good information. It's not anymore uh reading gated pdfs on when you boot up your desktop computer in the office in 2012 and you find a pdf and you consume it offline and then when you need something searching some blog in google and the the core difference now is that we can connect with all of our peers i know all the experts in the spaces and if i'm into a new space i can quickly through using the internet find who are all the experts in this space and what do they think and how are they producing information And how are they, you know, influencing or impacting what my customers think, the way that people consume content has moved way more to natively inside of social networks. So I can remember back in the day on Twitter, like Twitter was basically write a blog and then post a link to the blog on Twitter and hope that people click through. And over time, all the networks have deprioritized that because they make more ad revenue. If you stay on the platform, it's not complicated. So they're deprioritizing, putting links and moving people off the platform to keep them on. So, we are incentivized to create content that people consume inside of the social inside of the social network without leaving, um, which is very foreign to b two b companies because they're used to having a click and a landing page view and a form fill to say whether their content was good or not. Instead of now, what we look at is, are these people sharing my content i had a comment this morning cmo commented on my post this is so impactful i share all of your stuff with my team so way better yeah. data it's a way better data point about content that somebody clicked on our link to our case study and so there's just a general shift that needs to happen in terms of the level of true understanding that you have for your your customer overall that you're able to observe what they actually do and then be able to use those insights to basically Shape your strategy. So, like, the only reason that I ended up where I am today is all I did was watch what people were doing and listen to what they were saying and do what they were saying and doing. Touché. And so, like, yeah, people, people sometimes reflect on what I'm doing as uh, innovative, and really, it's just what I talked about in planning. All I do is look at large scale historical data and performance, and I listen to what people and customers are saying, and I pair those two things together, and I actually use the data to make make decisions even sometimes where people think it's unpopular or controversial i don't see them as unpopular or controversial because the data to me feels very obvious that this is the things that we should be doing today
0: yeah it inspired me to do this with our company and so this to me is for anybody listening a um a chris walker inspired thought we had a customer who was in a revenue pickle we came in they wanted to prove outbound we said it won't work we had great subject lines great domain warming um, great response rate. Everybody said no. Payroll company in Tennessee kind of took an ass whooping in COVID. Um, and it's a payroll company in Tennessee. Like, what are you, what are you going to do? And we did a lookalike into their audience and said, Hey, you guys do really good with restaurants, new to me. And by the way, they didn't have a lot of spend for any ad money. So we found out over two or three months that we got to get on a plane and go to Tennessee and hit the streets with cameras. And so we spent Thursday and Friday of last week, literally just going on our own accord to 20 restaurants eating the food, getting it all over ourselves, having the best fucking time of our life. And we got 128 pieces of content. And now we're building the landing page to say, we are a payroll company for restaurants. We understand restaurants. And we were talking to owners of five-star restaurants, eating the best desserts. And I sat there and I had to kind of pinch myself because I used to lead uh, revenue teams, sales teams, right? But we weren't doing this. And I think the effect that that can have on this business is going to be profound. So even in that way of thinking, Chris, thank you for always challenging me and others to to think differently about it. And it didn't cost a lot of money. It was thirty eight hundred bucks to charge the customer on cost, plus you know our services to do that. And I think the revenue could be significant from that. So thank you for inspiring me to think differently too all the time.
1: It's one hundred percent easier to spend a hundred thousand dollars on ads than do what you did. Yeah, and that's what a lot of companies do um yeah. the cost when you are making producing content is time that's, that's the cost and talent and effort and the exact same constraints exist when you're doing running paid advertising to be 100% honest yeah and so yeah i do believe that a lot of i do believe we'll continue to see a movement here but at the same time i like to balance it with realism yeah and so i think innovator like it's going to be great for your business Right. Yeah. like, But when you look at like broad, large scale movement of, you know, uh, the cloud 100 or like all series yeah. B startups, I think it's co- going to continue to be a very slow adoption curve until people feel immense pain, Yeah, which could be could, it, could, it could be looming. But yeah, I think we'll we'll see uh, we'll see a correction at some point, but I think it continues to be pretty slower than I would expect. In terms of adoption, agreed. Yeah,
0: this is fun, man. Thank you so yeah, much. Thanks for having me. A
1: lot yeah. of cool topics. Appreciate the questions and your preparedness, and also awesome to see your success. So yeah. f- you know, so far, it's interesting. Also, as you reflect back on your journey, it's easy to say like I started a lead gen company and that didn't work, and like lead gen must have sucked, but. As I reflect on a lot of the things that I've done, I've this like you could look at Refine Labs as my third company. The first two didn't have employees, but they did hundreds of thousands in revenue. Yeah, and you just learn as a professional, and some and oftentimes, the only way to truly learn is to get punched in the fucking face. And a lot of people can you know give you advice and things like that, but it's. Uh, it's truly hard to feel the lesson until you really feel it as an entrepreneur, and it's a feeling and a learning and a lesson that ninety-nine percent of people never even get exposed to. Yeah. As part of us, sort of playing the game. So the way that I look at it is, you did that, you learned a bunch of shit. Now you're on your next one, and your next one's going to be even more successful because of this all this, the stuff that you learned. Yeah. And I look at that from my own perspective too. If I started another company tomorrow. Everything that I've had with me in my past career then increases the probability and likelihood for the next thing for me to make better decisions, for me to make you know avoid mistakes, for me to to do a lot of those things. So I sort of look at it the same way of where you are right now.
0: Yeah, thanks, brother. It's 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 not easy. It is entirely fucking worth it because um, that that tunnel going through it feels tight. But if you just keep, I mean. And that's why I said, like you, you, you people like you kept me going. And when I say mindset, it's like, well, I had two choices. I could curl up and die. And that didn't seem like a very good choice. It didn't mean I wasn't sad. It didn't mean I didn't have regrets. It didn't mean I didn't have amends to make. But I just kept listening to positive people and plugging the holes where I was negative. It was finance, financial acumen. Whoops, fuck. I didn't really know how to balance a P&L. I knew how to be a, a P&L watcher, but I really didn't understand the sensitivity around that. So round two. Yeah, I do. But there's other blind spots I don't know about. And Mm -hmm. uh, always are. Yeah. So thanks, brother. I'm going to keep on keeping on. So I appreciate your time today. And uh, it's fun to watch you guys keep uh, growing and your growth as well, Chris, as a person. Thank you. Appreciate you. All right, brother. Appreciate you too.